The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name is Emma Race and I'm fired up after a weekend diet reading about the CBA and the AEC with a delicious side serve of the HFC. We've got so much to discuss today and I can't do it alone. Say hello to two of my Sanctum siblings. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Tess Armstrong. And hello, I'm Lucy Race. You still can make me laugh after all these years. It's a true love story. She's still got it. She's still got it. And to Felicia on the clams. <laughs> so um, we enjoy being independent women here and it really has been a weekend to celebrate independent women. There's also been a lot of beautiful Sir Doug Nichols themed footy to enjoy as well. But you two are still smiling, the grins of Cheshire cats and dogs everywhere. I'm going to come to you for some highlights and you can mix it up. It can be footy, it can be VFL, it can be AFLW, it could be VFLW, it could be the Electoral Commission. (laughs) What would you like to go with? I'm going to come to you first, Teddy Armstrong. I've got a lot of highlights from the weekend. It was a big weekend. Also, I had my first slight hangover since having a child, which was a really eye-opening experience because, of course, they don't ever let up and then you are suffering in a (laughs) whole new way that I didn't ever imagine. So it was a really big weekend of change for all of us. The biggest highlight for me happened off the field but on the field for Richmond and it was this beautiful moment on our Dreamtime night, which is just always such an amazing game. I had the biggest curse on the weekend of being split-screen election and Dreamtime at the G. So I had the Dreamtime on the side, election on the telly but muted and election coverage on the radio but up. And so it was a sound (laughs) sensation in my living room and it was just, it was all happening. It was so exciting. But there was this great moment for Richmond before the game where during the war cry our non-Indigenous players all got around our Indigenous players who led on the field. And if you haven't watched the watched the video, just go and watch it. It's, it's extraordinary. And um, Caro Wilson was talking on Offsiders on Sunday about how that moment was really five years in the making. And it was just an incredible moment for the club. And I couldn't, I cried like a lot. I mean, I was, I, clearly I was hungover with a baby, but I also still, <laughs> it was just an emotional time. And I just love seeing that. I love seeing the development over time of our celebration of our culture and just how it changes and, and how it grows even still. And so that was really significant. A footy highlight, not for, not related to Richmond, Charlie Kerno. I mean, honestly, oh. you know when you see it, a player that just you cannot take your eyes off, who has been so cursed by injury in and out of that side and really the footy gods have lined everything up at the same time. Carlton have this new sensation. They've got a new coach. Their fans are up and about. They're playing great footy and Charlie Kerno's in amazing form and I just could not stop watching. You didn't know what he was going to do next on Friday night. It was unbelievable. So I loved that. And one other moment, so I said I had a split screen between, you know, Anthony Green and the um, footy on 
the weekend, which are my two great loves, um, politics and footy. And I had to go to the Anthony Green of football on Friday, uh, Sir Swamp Thing, and find out just some election materials. I was like, what stats have you got for me? And he had a couple about, you know, Jack Dyer having played under the most prime ministers. Jack Dyer played under eight different prime ministers back in the day. So that's quite a substantial record. But one I thing I didn't he remember had- seeing him in the Rudd Gillard Rudd years. <laughs> Right. You know, that's the that's the classic lesson, isn't it, that you think your time is tumultuous but just like have a squeeze back in history. There's probably been another time before. But one material he did have, there was a big record broken on the weekend. So Melbourne obviously broke their 57-year premiership drought. Like who cares? Big deal. They had a 68-year election day drought and they broke that on the weekend by beating <laughs> North Melbourne. So congratulations to the Demons. I presume there'll be a statement put out later about <laughs> the significance of, of that. It really made me laugh thinking about how people still still like to say, I don't know, do people still say it? Politics and sport don't mix because there just feels like there is so many intertwining relationships between politics and sport. And I've got to say, I was trying to read the tea leaves by watching, I was watching North Melbourne, they were really gaining, they were just playing so well against the D's and I was thinking, it's the shin voters coming up against the, the you know, institution <laughs> and the old school and I'm like, oh, I think I know what's going to happen in the election based on this. But also thinking about the fact that Josh Frydenberg lost his seat, does he retain his number one ticket holder status with the Carlton <laughs> Football Club. Is he still of use to them? Is he still, is he on the nose? What's going to happen next? And, you know, just then realising that all of a sudden we've got a PM who's a Hawthorne supporter and I can't think of anything that would irk Jeff Kennett more. <laughs> two great loves of his and one one from the wrong side of the aisle and one right in his wheelhouse. You know, I always wonder whether or not uh, Prime Ministers, you know, when they say, oh, I barrack for this team and you go, do you really though, especially a Prime Minister from Sydney. Yeah. Think does he does he really barrack for Hawthorne? But the only thing that made me realise that must be true is Jeff Kennett calling it out. I thought, oh, okay, Jeff Kennett would never say that <laughs> about a Labor Prime Minister <laughs> unless it was really true. So big win for the Hawks. Massive win. Lucy, you're still smiling. What's gotcha? Oh my goodness. Um, I'm like Tess. I've got like so many highlights that this could be the whole podcast. I just want to take you to a little tale of um a split screen story that <laughs> from Saturday night <laughs> when I was doing some distracted sport watching. I think I mentioned to you yesterday, Tess, that I did watch that um, Richmond and Essendon game and I have absolutely no idea what happened because I was my brain was so fractured by watching election results. But it's not quite as bad as what I did in the lead up to 6pm and that was when I set up the laptop to watch the Melbourne victory versus the Western United semi-final in the A-League or did I? <laughs> what I actually did... <laughs> The semi-finals in two legs, right? So <laughs> I thought oh. I was watching the second leg. <laughs> what we actually watched was the first leg. <laughs> and in the first leg, Melbourne won that, 1-0. And so my husband and I sat there quite chipper going, isn't this great? Melbourne victories won and what a great way to sort of get into the evening. It wasn't until Sunday when we were speaking to somebody else that we realised they'd actually lost it, 1-4, because we'd watched the wrong thing. That's so, actually quite election vibes. You never know it? until the next day when those numbers start rolling in. Well, all I could think of was I really hope we were watching the right election results. <laughs> 
As a young girl, I used to watch the Saturday afternoon movie on TV and I never realised that intermission didn't mean the end. So I've watched a whole <laughs> lot of movies only halfway through and then subsequently found out that Anna Karenina dies. It's been quite the second alert. leg of the A-League. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, okay. I just can't work out streaming, so there's there's an issue for us. I also have a, I have a footy highlight, which is so parochial because I am going to go to the Hawthorne win over Brisbane, which was incredibly unexpected. I really didn't think that we were, I thought we'd be competitive, but I didn't think we'd win it. And I just want to shout out uh, Jai Newcomb, who last year was playing in the VFL. So the Hawks selected him at number two in the mid-season draft, and he is having an absolute blinder. He got 10 coaches' votes on the weekend alongside Clayton Oliver and Max King, which really puts him kind of in contention in that mix for rising star. There was a moment deep in the fourth quarter where there was only three points in the game and he did this gather on the boundary, tucked the ball under his arm, went for a little burst of speed, kicked it inside 50 to the top of the square, Luke Bruce gold, and it was a thing of beauty and good on you, Jai. Loved it. Loved it a lot. So you've just taken my highlight, but the thing I love about Jai, <laughs> no, but which is completely fine, of course, that we both have the same highlight. and One jump um, and two head holes. <laughs> One jumper, two head holes. I just love that uh, Jai finds himself playing under Sam Mitchell, who neither of them were picked up through the traditional methods of mm. um, of the system, and both of them have lit the competition on fire in their own ways. And then you look to the Hawthorne AFLW list, and there's Bet Goddard reselecting for the second time in her career Sarah Perkins to play in her AFLW side and I just love that story I feel like the the way that these two stories mirror each other Beck I think would be fine for me to say that she has felt maligned by the system over the last couple of seasons that she hasn't been coaching at the AFLW level we know that the challenges she had Sarah Perkins as you would remember, was not selected to play in the in the first round of um, draft picks in the in the first season of AFLW, and because she'd nominated to play for Victoria, no Victorian teams picked her up. Beck flew her to Adelaide after all those first picks had gone, and and she said within thirty seconds she knew that she needed this girl on her team, and they go on to win the premiership in the first season. And I just love I love those stories. It just feels so rare in the modern era of footy, especially in the men's game, to see people finding their way through a different method and, and to see Jai really tearing it up and, and playing with absolute abandon. He just looks like he's having the time of his life out there. Further to him, I love him. He's just absolutely blitzing it. And even in your losses this year, he's been so strong and he's been such a standout. And and thinking about his career also led me to think about the retirement and announcement this week of Anthony McDonald Tip and Woody, um, who's retired, who came into the system as a rookie and is leaving maybe before time. But, you know, what? what is time? I mean, what is a career? He has absolutely left a huge impact on the footy world. He came in, the whole world fell in love with him. We got the pleasure and privilege of getting to watch him play. And now he he goes on and lives his life and that is um, wonderful for footy to know that there are many different ways to skin a cat. There's a million different ways to, to make your mark in the game. It doesn't have to be the traditional way. Yeah, congratulations to all of them. It was a beautiful thing to see Anthony just embraced by mm. his team as they ran onto the field on Saturday night. I, did, I didn't miss that bit. 
No, that was beautiful. And also the outpouring of support for him. The the biggest story, we're not going to bury it. Let's roll up our sleeves and melee, ladies, because the CBA has been completed. Yay! (laughs) And it's been really well received by the players. The outpouring of celebration on Twitter really reflected the joy that they're going to be remunerated for the time spent training, which let's be really honest. I want to just blow the lid on this, is that they're actually just getting paid now for what they were doing anyway. Anyway, like it's not like the money trucks being rolled in. If you're a, t- a tier one player, there's only two tier one players, I think, in each team. Is that right? I still kind of can't get my that head around correct. the yeah. soft cap, but I think that's true. So, you know, it's not like all of a sudden they're rolling in the dough and they're going to be at nightclubs handing out $50, you know. No, it's not pineapples for everyone. But what I noticed was there was a real celebration around the way the PA had supported them. It's a far cry from what had happened in the previous CBA. It'll be interesting to look at what happens going forward because it's only one year and we can speculate about why that is. But Lucy, do you just want to give us the nuts and bolts of the CBA, a bit of a cheat sheet? So the key takeaway is a 94% pay increase across the board. And you're right, Emma, there's only two players on tier one, which is at around 71, nearly $72,000 a year. But something to, to also keep in mind is that they're actually saying that over 40 players will actually earn more than $100,000 because of some changes that allows money outside of those base salaries to go to players. So that's ASAs, they're called additional service agreements, which is marketing and sponsorship. And there's also a bigger pool of prize money. So it actually is life-changing. It's life-changing even for, you know, when you go down to the 16 players that are on the tier four, that's increased to $40,000 a year or $40,000 for that playing season. The contracts will only run from May until December. And you're right, uh, the major sticking point seems to be the number of home and away games that the AFL would agree to. So what has been agreed to is that in season seven, there will be again, 10 home and away games, but there'll be four finals. So that's one extra that will be negotiated going forward for season eight. Tess, how did the CBA hit the mark for you? Did it land? I said on Friday, if you look at the way the players reacted, the relief, the uh, how impressed they were, the words like life-changing, that to me says it hits the mark, right? If they're happy, I'm happy. They're the ones doing the work. To me, part of it was the, as we always talk about, the look of the thing. Uh, I think sometimes when we have public conversations in the media and as fans, what's really happening in the background is that the players do know what's going on, you know, so we can be outraged, but they actually have a sense of what's going on. But what really struck me this time is that they didn't know what was going on. It matters to bring people in on conversations you're having about them. Well, the thing that, I mean, the mail that I had, and there was it was a real dichotomy of knowing where, where to push, because this is the kind of thing that we would always push on, that we'd ask the questions of the AFL or of the PA or of the players that would be loud and we'd be advocating in a certain direction. But to be really honest, I didn't know which way to push because I actually think that the length that it took was because the PA was holding out for the conditions that the players wanted. And where I think there was a a miscommunication or, or a lack of communication maybe 
was that I think that there was kind of like a telephone tree set up, that there was a number of players that were on the inner sanctum of this conversation and it was up to them to feed information out to other players, which I guess makes sense. But what happens then is it's up to those people to decide which information they share. The other thing is if you think about players who had already left one club and were waiting to sign for another club and also, you know, potential VFLW players or um, players who were in that tier down waiting to know if they got signed, they don't get in the catch-all of that uh, of those of those telephone trees. So I think that there was curiosity about that. What it has given us is a 26th of August start date for season seven, which means pre-season starts in just two weeks, which is mm. just seems it, it just seems completely ludicrous, right? Like, I mean, I don't know if the Crows have even got back from their Mad Monday yet from celebrating their <laughs> win, Lucy. <laughs> Well, and, you know, the other thing is that pre-season starts before the draft. So the draft is on the 29th of June. So I think there's going to be some real challenges for the players who are picked up in the draft, particularly those who are finishing year 12. Uh, what I wonder is well, there was so much frustration waiting for this CBA to land. It's wonderful to see how happy the, the players are. And I think in that Hayley Miller article, she referred to a text from Das who said, be right back, fainting. <laughs> Do all of those frustrations get forgotten now and everybody just moves on or does does this sort of continue in, in the way that the next CBA will be negotiated? Well, we can get all the answers to those questions and more because Rana caught up with Paul Marsh from the AFLPA and asked him a bunch of questions that we pulled together. Please enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Rana. Really um, pleased to have a chat and, um, yeah, look forward to having a chat about all things AFLW. Absolutely. I mean, you've had a huge couple of weeks securing a collective bargaining agreement for the AFLW players. In footy terms, how would you characterise this CBA result? Was it a steal at the final siren or a, you know, methodical decisive win or a bruising battle? How would you characterise it? Well, probably a combination of the last two. Um, there was a lot of work that went into it and, and, you know, the players were heavily involved with us the whole way through. But, um, you know, these things are always challenging and I think there's a lot of time and hours that went into getting the final results. So there was a few bruises along the way, but that's good. How do you negotiate stuff like this? What does that actually look like in practical terms? Well, the, the AFL Players Association is, a, as our name um, suggests, is a players uh, representative body so it's really important we understand what the players actually want us to achieve so that's the first part is preparation um, we did a lot of work over about 18 months getting to a point where we were really clear on what the players wanted not just in the short term but in the longer term as well um, and then it's a matter of you know doing all the work you need to present your arguments to the AFL as to why what we're looking for here is something that the game can afford to pay should be doing and then you sit down as a, as a group and start to work through the issues so so um, we involved a group of players. There were five players on our um, negotiating committee who I'd actually like to just shout out publicly who those five players were because they did such a good job for us. So Annalise Lister from um, the Giants, who's on our board, Cat Phillips from the Saints, um, Gabby Seymour from the Tigers, Karen Harrington from the Blues, and Izzy Huntington, who was with the Dogs, is now heading up to the Giants. They were part of the negotiations with us with the AFL and lots of back and forth. Gil and I did a lot of the um, sort of work towards the end. We had several meetings and yeah got there last week so we're all thrilled. The players have been unanimously celebrating this CBA result on Twitter. I mean you have Darcy Vessio making memes about you. <laughs> 
this is a very different response from the last CBA result. What's happened in that time? I mean, were you on an oval somewhere holding a boom box over your head <laughs> in your eyes? Well, what's happened since then to repair that relationship? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've stood in front of the players and, and you know, actually addressed the shortcomings of last time. I think there were things that we didn't get right last time and, you know, we're big enough and strong enough to, to actually acknowledge that and I think that's important. But we've set about listening and we've set about learning more. We, um, we undertook a really important piece of work with an external consultant that we've used a few times to help really gather the insights around okay where were we at with the aflw players and i think you know the the outpouring that we saw last week was um a product of a few things one was i think the players were genuinely part of this negotiation so we made sure that happened with not only those five players i spoke about but our captains our delegates they were part of this journey the whole way through so they owned it i think the outcome was bigger than just the financial recognition it was more that they actually felt as though the players felt as though they were being respected genuinely as part of this industry i think for the first time and i think that's what where i saw the real joy that came out of this is that i think they looked and when everyone actually now sees aflw as a legitimate, recognised part of this industry and, you know, it's only going to go forwards from here. So, yeah, I, I think just, you know, understanding what we could have done better in the past, learning from it and, and learning those lessons and doing better and, and working really closely with the players. It is a one-year CBA. Why is that? Great question. Um, you know, really, like the, the probably the major issue that we're still apart on from the AFL is around the number of games. Um, we have a vision that by 2026 that this competition is going to be professional. And what I mean by that is that the players have the option of playing football and we want to get to a point with the games where every team plays each other once. And the AFL, whilst coming to the party financially for the first year of this discussion, haven't really made it. We haven't made any ground on the number of games yet. So they wanted to do a three-year deal with no growth in games. Our view is we need to progress towards 17 home and away games by 2026. And it was clear that if we locked in for three years, that that would be nearly impossible. So we just weren't, we weren't prepared to do a three-year deal. So, you know, we'll live to fight that one at another time, but that is still a major issue for us and the players. Group. So I think probably one of the benefits of where we've landed is it, it very likely brings the men's and the WCBAs together. And I think that'll be, you know, that's going to be a big part of what we do for the rest of the year is getting ready for that. That is a really exciting option now for both leagues, I guess. What is the opportunity if the men and women's leagues do negotiate together? Yeah, there's probably a few opportunities. I mean, for the for the competition to try to have one agreement that covers every player does make things easier for everyone so there's real benefit in doing that you know from the players perspective you know one of the things that we'll be pushing for in addition to you know obviously continually driving salaries up and more games is is general equality around the terms and conditions and I think that is something that when you get to a joint CBA it's very difficult to have you know for example a different travel clause for the AFL players to the AFLW players so they're the types of things and there's lots of those examples and you know we need to sit down and actually negotiate an agreement that um, has commonality of you know all the benefits obligations restrictions etc between both groups of players what's your relationship like with the AFL you you have to be back at a table with them in a year's time what is that relationship like probably be a bit quicker than a year I reckon but I think (laughs) I'd say it's it's healthy and it's productive yeah there's always tension there because ultimately we're trying to achieve outcomes 
for the playing group and the AFL has got more masters to serve than just the playing group and we understand that. But when I say the playing group, the collective playing group. So I think, you know, there's... um, yeah, we have our moments. I'm not going to lie about that. But I think there's a healthy respect on both sides. And one thing we have been able to do, in, certainly in my time here, is uh, is listen to each other and try to work through the problems and, and try to find solutions. So um, there there is um, certainly some you know healthy tensions there, which I think is good for the game uh, when you look at the big picture. There's some detail I want to ask you about. There's talk about kind of enhanced capacity and flexibility within the AFLW soft cap policy to ensure that all clubs are able to provide the necessary support for players. Does that mean that clubs can pivot when it comes to the roles that they acquire so that they could bring in a psychologist if in fact they initially plan to have a bunch of physios? Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, the, the clubs have a certain level of autonomy around how they spend their soft cap. We don't have a situation where everyone has to employ exactly the same types of people. I think what we and the players have been pushing for is an increase to the soft cap, but also, you know, just, again, replicating the types of services that, that should be expected in a W competition because we're seeing it with the, the AFL competition, like the right, right level of medical support and physio. And, you know, we've got players who are obviously training and we should have the right um, support staff sitting around them so that if anything does happen, then they're properly looked after. So it, there's a real focus on that. The AFL were, um, to their credit, you know, completely open to those conversations. I mean, this is about professionalising the competition and, and I think that we can't be taking shortcuts on such important issues as how we support players medically. So I think we'll see some really important positive shifts in this space and I think that'll only get better as we move towards professionalism. Achieving all these outcomes then basically means growing the pie, the whole pie, so that there's more for everyone. How do we do that? Well, I think, you know, the pie is a product of how many people are watching the game, interested in the game, buying merchandise and all the rest of it. And, look, clearly um, increasing the number of um, females playing AFL um, is going to help with that. So I think inspiring kids to get involved in, in AFL over other sports is going to create supporters who will spend money and you know that that flows through every part of the football economy so um but not just females i mean this is also about you know getting inspiring young boys as well and so you know more more supporters will lead to more money and a bigger pie and that's what something we're really focused on how different are the negotiations from the men's side of things to the women's not that much really i mean i think ultimately it's you know it's the same sort of process is you know what, what are our respective objectives and sitting down and trying to nut through the detail of it. I mean, the, the quantum of the men's deal at the moment has, is significantly bigger, but the, the issues that are presenting and the way we go about it, not so much. I mean, this one, this deal took about six weeks, I think, of, you know, from sort of first proposals to getting the deal done, which would be the quickest deal that probably ever done from a CBA perspective, yet there was quite a lot of criticism around how long it took. So, you know, the bigger the deal, sometimes it takes a bit longer. Um, But outside of that, the process is very similar. Just on that, there's a lot of noise that does come from the public around these uh, negotiations and conversations. Is there something that you want the public to know that they don't already or that you want the public to consider when it comes to negotiating CBAs? 
Oh, look, I just, you know, we're, these are really important milestones in in what we do and um, for, for the playing group. Um, they're also important for the game and sometimes they take time. Um, we try not to play these negotiations out through the media. It's certainly not something that we do by way of practice. I think the tension, and that's what the media like to report on here, is the potential fight between the players, the PA and the AFL. That's a, a natural part of it. So I think let's not get too excited about all of that. This is about bettering the conditions for the players, but also making the game stronger. And I think if you go back over the CBAs that we've done over time, and I've been doing this in, in both football and cricket, the game continues to get stronger every time we do one of these deals. And I think that's something everyone should keep in mind as we work through the, the nuances of a negotiation. I've noticed that there's a lot of talk often in the public, whether it's the PA or the AFL um, or any other sport really around reports and when reports are commissioned and then when they're released. What's your view on that in terms of does the public have a right to see those reports when they are commissioned? Um, I think it probably depends on how how you've set that up in the first place. We do reports. You know, I spoke about a report before that we got commissioned that was an insights report around the AFLW players. There was no intention ever to release that publicly. It was there to help us better understand our members and help us then represent them. Firstly, I don't think there'd be that much interest in it publicly. But it's. I think what's most important with any of these reports is that you action what comes out of it. In saying that, there are stakeholders that are involved in in different reports. So, you know, the umpiring one, for example, there's probably a a responsibility to report back to the umpiring fraternity what came out of that report, just like we would report back to the players what comes out of a report that we've commissioned. So I think that's probably where your responsibility lies. But a lot gets made at times around transparency of reporting and I think you know you've probably got to get ahead of that a little bit and actually set it up from the start that it is or it isn't going to be publicly released and if it isn't I still think it's about actioning what comes out of the report. Are you comfortable with where you're at given the insights that came out of the recent report that you mentioned whatever they are do you feel like you've made movement on those? I think so I mean look I think I can only go by the feedback that we've had from the playing group and it's been incredibly positive and you talked before about some of the things that you know you'd seen on social media for example but I think the feedback we have got from the player, from the players has been overwhelmingly positive we survey both of our playing groups a couple of times a year and we actually check in on the player sentiment towards us and that has improved significantly so I can go on that but I reckon that's a question to ask some of the players you know from when the chance arises. Have you listened to Darcy Vessio's playlist, CBA playlist? <laughs> yeah, I haven't listened to it, but I have seen the cover and, um, yeah, it's a lot of trouble went into doing that. So it's very, very intricate and I did a good laugh about it. I want to ask you about player wellbeing. There's requirements in this CBA of, for the clubs to ensure that players have reached a minimum level of fitness. Is this a change and is that off the back of, you know, the the high amount of injuries that we saw in the last season? Uh, it's not a change. That's been in there in previous CBAs. It's a pretty standard clause in, in any CBA, whether that be male or female. Um, I think it's just a sort of, you know, the deals are two ways. You know, it lays out the, be- the benefits to the players, but it also lays out the players' obligations. And one of them is to obviously be fit enough to perform the sport so I don't think it's unreasonable I think if you looked at any any CBA you'd probably find something similar in there. The world's changing a lot and expectations of sporting organisations are really shifting what's the AFL 
PA doing around that kind of a conversation and the public expectation around that? We're doing quite a bit of work in the background at the moment on this. I think there's been some well-documented issues within our industry that um, we, we look at and we put ourselves in this bucket as well. I, I don't think the industry's done enough around issues of you know, particularly race, but even gender. Um, I think what we're trying to do is learn more, better understand the changes that need to be made, um, and then put the right structures and people around that. So I think we've done that well with you know, the AFLW um, competition and our players. Um, we are currently doing some work on, I've spoken to you about this previously, but um, a human rights framework for our organisation that I don't want to talk too much more about at this moment because we're still putting it together, but that is going to be an important part of what we do going forward. And it's about creating a system that's better going forward, but also addressing the issues of the past. You've been around sport for a long time. I mean, are these conversations or how hard are these conversations to have as a leader? You know, does it scare you or is it something that you kind of face with confidence? Probably a bit of both, to be honest. Some of these issues, and this might not be quite right, but they're almost, they're emerging in some respects. Like I think we all now have really an understanding of our responsibility and we probably haven't collectively got this right in the past so there is an element of being well you know don't you don't know what you don't know and there's you know you open yourself up to um potentially being embarrassed if you don't get this right but that's also motivation to get it right but i also think it's important to get the right people around you as you you know you try to make the changes that you know are right you know we've we've had too many people in this industry and it's not just an afl issue who have been harmed from their time in, in their sports and you know we need to to you know to pardon the pun but we need to do better and um i think that that's what we're focused on but i don't think this is going to be an easy journey for us or anyone else and um you know we're going to embrace that and we're going to attack it with the right intent but you know we may not get everything right on the way through i'm going to ask my final question to you something i have actually asked you before but i want to ask you again on the mic (laughs) why do you do this work what you know? What is it that gets you out of bed? Well, I, I do remember you asking me this question, and um, I like helping people. So you know, that's a that's certainly part of sort of my values. Is I'm in a fortunate position to be able to help people, and um, you know, do that in a certain way. You know, I think our you know, our values here are very much about people, and um, you know, I think if the players of, of any sport don't have a players association, then I think. My genuine view is they'll get exploited. And so I think it's important that they have good and strong representation. But also at the same time, you know, you've, you've always got to have your eye on the game. And so try to find that happy medium of, uh, of pushing the game forward, but also making sure the players benefit from that and are well looked after because um, they're a short time in sport and um, you know, they've got a lifetime after that that, you know, they need to be looked after. So... Um, trying to help people is at the core of it, but it's it's probably slightly bigger than that. Thanks so much for your time and congratulations. 94% increase in pay is a massive win, so well done. Thank you, Rana. Great chat. Lucy, the conditions for players in the AFLW isn't the only topic that we need to address. And actually, Lisa Caddo, who is a stalwart of women's footy media and a total legend, has been bringing to our attention that coaches and people working around the AFLW system are probably being underpaid too. What do you know? Well, what I do know is that by some calculations, some of the the coaches and assistant coaches are getting paid as little as 10 to $15 an hour. <laughs> So that's when you calculate their total payments um, and divide it by the actual hours that they're working, which is clearly 
not good enough. There isn't a CBA for coaches and the Coaches Association, as I understand it, has not brought in all of the AFLW coaches as full members. That is in part due to being underfunded and under-resourced. So I think if we want a strong, robust, well-resourced competition, that it's incredibly important that we start looking at the way that coaches and ancillary staff are looked after. I guess that that's a story that we need to dig into and probably ask more questions about. It's not something for the PA, obviously, it's for the Coaches Association. And hopefully, you know, there is enough people working as coaches in the AFLW system, as we know, who are people who've been working in the AFL system for such a long time, hopefully they can go and advocate for themselves and get noisy about this because this is the point where they need to get in there and and have these conversations. At least in this, there's less of them than there are players. Hopefully they can all band together and, and get in there and have some conversations and use the agency that they have through the Coaches Association to start those conversations because otherwise we're just going to start losing people again, aren't we, that have the intel mm. and it's not going to be a viable option for, for people to go into coaching in the AFLW system. I'm Melissa Hickey and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. The election has really demonstrated people power to upset the two-party apple cart. It got me thinking about the people power which unseated the push for a night grand final test. I think you have some opinions on that. <laughs> did it remind you of of that or am I being naive? No, it really did. I, I mean, obviously I cover the elections quite closely and I do it for news and, and I've covered so many elections in the last 10 years and I, I feel like they are always running the same type of campaign and one thing that the political parties and you know the political press have not kept up with is that the public are quite savvy like they have a really very good understanding that they're being manipulated that they're being tricked that conversation is hot air that conversation is not hot air they they are much more savvy and mature than than the media and the people in power give them credit for and one thing that just absolutely makes my honestly gives me an instant brain bleed is the conversation about changing the time slot of the grand final when it happens at exactly the same time every year, often as a distraction from something else that's going on. In this case, the AFLWCBA, there was a lot of conversations about that. And then all of a sudden it was reported as fact that they were absolutely going to change the time, which enraged fan base. And then in the end, as Titus O'Reilly said, only served so that the AFL could say, see, we listened to you guys and we kept it the same. You never had to change it. So what's the point of pissing people off? Why don't you bring people with you? So if they genuinely think that there is a case to change the time and they genuinely think there is growing public support, put it to the people. Let's do things that we've never done before, say from the AFL exec footy fan referendum, grand final day this year, 2022. There's a massive lead up. There's campaigns on both sides. You've got players, you've got people, you've got media people. They all put their pitch on. It's on socials. It's in people's community footy clubs. Everyone's involved. Grand final day, halftime. We need you to text in by halftime, night or daytime or twilight, blah, blah, blah. At the end on the stage after the end of the game, they announce <laughs> the big winner, right? Is it twilight? Is it day? And then the AFL can say, see, the fans want it to be this or see, the fans want it to be that. But it's a bit of fun. Brings everyone with you. We always talk about that on this podcast, nothing about us without us. The AFL exists to be about us without us. And there's nothing better than bringing people along with you on decision-making, making people feel like it's still their game and they feel involved and then they have ownership and then it's a bit fair. Like if everybody voted 
yes to a Twilight Grand Final, then that's what the people want. And everyone would feel differently about it than people in suits making a decision. And something I've always said should exist is a fan representation on the AFL exec. Mm -hmm. There's the Fans Association, they do an amazing job. But apart from that, it always feels like decisions are being made on our behalf. And that just really just really gets me. Well, it's so important, Tess, because I think we saw a article yesterday that said that the AFL crowds are actually at their lowest levels in 26 years, if you exclude the COVID seasons. And there's a number of reasons that people are you know, discussing about what's going into that. And of course, part of it is health related, that we still have COVID, we still have a whole lot of health issues in the community that people are concerned about. But There's also issues about ticketing. There's a whole conversation about umpiring, which I think is fascinating and probably needs to be considered in a really nuanced way because it's not black and white, as the team were talking about on the pod last week. And the discussion about the grand final is is really kind of indicative of that. And we're at a time where, you know, you talk about the CBA, one of the impacts of that is that the AFL is going to be paying a whole lot more money into the AFLW competition. So we need it to be a strong, healthy competition for both the men's and the women's and ignore crowds at your peril. And one also conversation that we learned about on the weekend was once again, probably the government and potentially predominantly the media were quite surprised by the mood for change, but I wasn't. And I don't know anyone in my life that was surprised that there was a mood for change. And similarly at an AFL level, so when Gillen announced that he was going to be stepping down, there was the, you know, traditional a few days of coverage about who would take over. And that conversation's kind of gone away. And that allows an organisation to feel like they can go away and do the thing they've always done, which is select someone within the room and say, okay, steady as she goes. They should be looking at this and thinking, hang on, maybe we're also misreading the room. Is there a big mood for change in the public? But I just feel like there there could be some lessons in there about people actually care about about the type of leadership and maybe there's a maybe there's room for it. What we learned is that democracy is messy and we're okay with that. I think it's the people that hold the positions of power and also the media who didn't expect and, and underestimated how happy we are to have a, a really different um, looking crossbench, to have power in many different seats and in many different pockets because we all want to be heard and represented. And so I think that it's these traditional institutions that can't bend and didn't see it coming because that's just the way that they keep seeing it through the same prism. I guess I think about it, if I was thinking about on the weekend, climate, for example, used to be an issue just reserved for the left and it was a bit of a dog whistle. People would say it was a dog whistle. Climate is now an issue that absolutely everyone is aware of, whether you believe the science or not. Most people, I think, do. People have been hit with the issue of climate in their houses being flooded, their houses being burnt mm. down with the heat that they're facing through, you know, summers and, un, you know, summers that go on forever. And people are really aware of it because they're living that truth out in the populace. And I guess that when I think about it in terms of footy, you can advocate for Tassie having a team and the AFL can keep putting the brakes on that. But what we're seeing is that people aren't turning up 
for Tasmania games when you're watching Port Adelaide playing North Melbourne anymore because they're saying, well, give us a team. And so we've lost interest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where you can legislate in one certain direction and you can tell yourself that climate is only an issue for the left, you get to the polls and what you realise is that climate is actually an issue for everyone. So there are real lessons to be learnt in this. And I'm real I feel really hopeful that um that the way that the CBA kind of demonstrates an understanding that just being grateful doesn't pay your rent anymore, that you need to listen to women and you need to work with women of the AFLW. You can't just hand it out the way that it's always been done because it's not a homogenous group. And I'm not saying that the men are a homogenous group either, but but the fact that the men live in really similar conditions, that they're full-time professional athletes, means that, it, you know, you do need different negotiating styles. And so I've gone from thinking that we're unlistened to and that it's not going to make a difference to feeling incredibly hopeful now that we have the power to make our voices heard and that more people are listening to more things and doing their own research in the the same windows and pockets it doesn't matter what media we're being fed we're all coming up with our own community-based decisions and I guess you know at a really base level the thing that has really thrilled me about um, this weekend's result is I no longer feel like it would be a scary place for women to work in Parliament House and I'm really looking forward to a time when I think it wouldn't be a scary place for women to walk into footy clubs and I'm really hopeful that that will flow down through because we are we have been begging to see leadership at the highest level that is respectful and that is innovative and that is um, socially conscious and I think that we are seeing that and I really look forward to that flowing down into all the other all the, all the other things that it affects, Lucy? One thing I do think we need to be mindful of is that one of the big conversations that we saw in this election was around kind of the notional idea of equality in sport. Sadly, that wasn't for helpful reasons, but because a Liberal candidate sought to weaponise the trans community really to bring in those the politics of fear, the electorate rejected her and arguably not just it wasn't just her seat that felt that effect. However, I think we still need to acknowledge that great damage was done. And once again, you know, the trans community bore the brunt of that, which is beyond awful. We need to keep in mind that globally we're seeing this this rise of anti-trans sentiment and it's being weaponized and used in lots of culture wars for political gain. And We've seen it happen overseas. We're seeing it on the rise in Australia and sports actually being used as as the battleground. And I think we've come to a point where we need to say that doing nothing is not an option anymore. Doing nothing is actually political. I would really sort of urge clubs, sporting clubs and organisations from grassroots all the way through to engage, have some conversations and start to enact some inclusive LGBTIQ plus policies. There's some really good resources out there and I would point you to Proud to Play as a great place to start if you want to have those conversations in your clubs. It's a really good point. I was actually thrilled to see that candidate get completely taken out of the conversation and and actually I just feel like the people who ended up getting seats just did just turn their back on that as even it's not even a, it's a ridiculous point we're not even going to talk about it are you saying that you would have preferred people to get in front of it and actually keep talking about it because I I think I I felt that not talking about it just gave it no oxygen because 
I felt that that might be a better way to move forward for people in the trans community because as soon as then someone sticks up for them, it becomes this public issue again and it Mm. becomes a debate again. And I hear what you're saying about saying nothing does harm, but, you know, I'd like, I guess I'd like to see the policies be more inclusive from the top down so that it just becomes a rite of passage. It doesn't become a a conversation for us to debate. I'm not saying you need to post about it on social media or to have conversations in that way. What I'm saying is that I think having conversations with people in your family or in your friendship group are really powerful. Just having conversations that debunk so much of the misinformation I think is really important. And I think grassroots and community sport has such a role to play here in showing how we can have inclusive policies that do what sport is all about. So sport is about giving people in the community an opportunity to come together to play a game, to make friends, to have connections, to do all of those things. And if we're excluding a part of the community based on misinformation um, or fear or hatred, then it's not doing its job properly. I'll tell you a little hopeful story on that. There was Pride Games on over the weekend in community and local footy and the club that my girls play for is the Darabin Falcons and they had a whole Pride celebration which was awesome and expected and they lead in that space so they nailed it. But I also went to a footy game that was uh, two private schools against each other this week um, to lend some support and there were the girls running out for their private schools wearing Pride socks and I just thought gee that worm has turned absolutely like the acceptance and the education and the power of that and there are lgbtiq plus identifying players on those teams and i just thought that's really quite extraordinary at a year seven level and uh, and it was really a far cry from any experience i had when i went to school can i give you a and i'm a feminist but <laughs> Oh, yes, of course you can. I'm a feminist, but yesterday I did go out to get my moustache and my chin hairs lasered. <laughs> I love where this I is going. It. So I was makeup free and not feeling my best because, you know, I had a full full beard. <laughs> what a time to run into Dr. <laughs> Monique, <laughs> the new sitting <laughs> member for Kooyong. <laughs> And boy, did I lose my shizzle. I absolutely (laughs) squealed from a distance, got up close, squealed again, and I met her team and they were just a team of women that were proud as punch. They looked like all of us and... Uh, maybe with less chin hairs than me, but um, (laughs) but they were just proud as punch and I got the opportunity to say, good luck, have fun, go for it. She obviously thought I voted for her. I don't live in her electorate, but I was, uh, I totally fangirled and I had that moment where I was like, this is, I'm actually seeing someone, I felt like such a nerd burger that I was fangirling <laughs> over a politician. But um, I also really relished in that moment, the fact that I could say this out loud on the podcast today, because I no longer work for the national broadcaster and won't end up in <laughs> Senate estimates. So I can actually tell you how I truly felt in that moment. So, you know, win-win, a freeing moment for both. And if you want to know why this makes a big difference, actually for women across all the political 
fields, all parties. It makes a massive difference if you go back and watch Annabelle Crabbe's documentary, Misrepresented, which was on the ABC this year and did a deep dive into how it has felt inside Canberra, inside Parliament House for a really, really long time. And the fact that this change happened this weekend and it was led by independent women who were centre makes a huge difference. And I know that a lot of the political men on Sunday in their wash-up had a lot to say about the fact that, well, if women wanted to run in Parliament, why didn't they run for them? Well, that's a question for you. Why didn't they want to run with you? And across all parties. But yeah, highly recommend Misrepresented if you didn't watch it. It might just give a little bit of extra context to why this feels so significant. We've also seen just an increase in the diversity of women in Parliament. So it's not just white women. Very exciting. And I have to admit that seeing the the change in the flags behind the Prime Minister yesterday was was really something because we're used to seeing um, Scott Morrison with three Australian flags behind him. And yesterday before Prime Minister Albanese took to the stage, he made sure that the flags were changed. So there was an Australian flag, an Aboriginal flag and a Torres Strait Islander flag. And I know that some, you know, that symbols by themselves are not helpful, but symbols can also be an indication of a change of mindset and I take heart from that. Totally. It is time for us to get out of here, but before we do, there was some final business. There was such a beautiful celebration of Indigenous culture in the AFL during the weekend, but Shelley alerted us to a kinship error that we needed to address and we said we would do it um, on her behalf um, because she's not on the pod today. Tess? Yeah, just really needing to clarify that Maurice Rioli is not Daniel's cousin. He's his uncle. I mean, try and get it right and try and understand. I mean, it's beautiful to understand people's culture and and also people's family relations. How incredible that Daniel's playing with his uncle. And, um, yes, please do get that right. Also, what a moment. We got to see uh, Shelley's son, Taj, had a role to play. I mean, Shelley, of course, had multiple roles to play across the weekend. But uh, Taj got the opportunity to hand the game ball over to the umpires and just love seeing that. I mean, Shelley, gee, she loves football and she loves Carlton, but there's nothing she loves like Taj. And just to see Taj (laughs) send a stage there massive shout out to our boy we just were so happy for the for the whole family I just think in the years to come I mean even if you know people don't recognize it now the importance that of Shelley Ware in this community and the the work that she's done uh for over almost 25 30 years in AFL media is just extraordinary and the fact that she's so much less cynical than we are that she (laughs) she holds us up she has so much joy and reminds us all the time to just share the love and be open-hearted and I'm glad that she had such a great celebration on the weekend one other piece of final business we just want to say congratulations to Peggy O'Neill who will be this year's recipient of the Outstanding Contribution to Victorian Sport Award at the Victorian Sport Awards which will be um, taking place on the 15th of June. We love your work Peggy. Congratulations. Muchos chef's kiss. I'm going to have to start like a farewell tour for Peggy. I'm honestly in that those early stages of grieving, the fact that she won't be our president after this season. And so if anyone, if any Richmond people out there want to get together, I mean, we could have multiple events, you know, as the time goes on. How would we ever properly thank Peggy for her contribution? Well, I've got an idea. Mm-hmm. I was thinking for our Outer Sanctum breakup this year when we do karaoke that we invite Peggy mm. to do some Dolly, Dolly Parton. Parton with us. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, that's my dream come true. Yeah, I'll hand over true. my coveted slot in the islands in the stream 
section. Do you feel like Peggy would do my um, my karaoke classic Whip It by Devo with me? <laughs> <laughs> I usually do it as a duet and so I feel like I should put it out to her. Maybe she'll, maybe she'll let me know. She can have that or these boots are made for walking. She gets a choice. I feel like when she's not president <laughs> we might just see her putting the Devo hat on, putting the cone on her head from training. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She can bring them from Bunt Road and we'll do a duet. Love it. I love Thanks, it. Thanks, Peggy. I've got one piece of final beeswax, which is uh, that the Taylor Harris documentary is launching, uh, premiering tonight, in fact, and it will be on one of your streaming services. Uh, I never know what this, which one. Anyway, it'll be on our socials and we'll tweet it. No, Lucy (laughs) has no idea. Um, But I look forward to that being uh, a deep dive into the life of Taylor Harris, but also let's support each other on socials because no doubt you know who will come out from under the troll bridge. Uh, So let's just make sure that we're being loud and proud on socials and because we want to see more of this kind of documentary. We want Drive to Survive for AFLW so we can really get invested and get more people invested um, and really enjoy the work of these incredible athletes. A bit like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when those trolls come out from beneath the bridge, the best thing that we can greet them with is a big burst of sunshine. Mm. Bang, right in the faces vanquished and I love that Lucy's facial blindness is also streaming blindness it's like I have to like write a little list of the blind yeah I'm like okay oh seriously I'm lucky that she recognizes me (laughs) it has been an absolute delight to see you today my friends and uh and to talk to you again we haven't been on the pod as a little trio for such a long time it's been been really nice a bit of reunion Yeah, a bit of a premiership reunion for us. Anyway, it is time for us to get out of here. Thanks so much to Paul Marsh for joining Rana on the on the pod today and for giving us some time. Have fun out there. There is only one thing left to say, my friends, and that is go, go, go footy. footy. Whip it real good. <laughs> 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 <laughs>